Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm coming to you from Towncast Studios in beautiful Mount Laurel, New Jersey. You know, if you have a podcast, a videocast, an audio book, or anything cool like that, a really cool project where you need audio or video, you got to reach out to Towncast Studios. Not only do Matthew and Joseph know what they're doing, but they're good guys and they're easy to work with. So go to their website, towncaststudios.com, or email them at info at towncaststudios.com. Anyway, we have a great show. It's funny. My guest today, I met her at a Chamber of Commerce event, but I used to run into her all the time at uh, the Catholic Business Networking um, Group. And it was funny. It was a breakfast over there at the Woodcrest Country Club. And I remember when they would go around, they want you to name your, your parish you're in. Well, I'm not Catholic, and, and my wife is, so I, would, I was going to name her parish, but I thought, one, I would screw it up because it's like St. Joe's Frog. I always forgot it. Or two... Someone else would be there and they'd be like, well, wait, wait, you go to, I go to that parish. You, we, I've never seen you there. And then I feel like an idiot. So anyway, she's a business owner and she does all, she does the Coop Tank promotional stuff. I'm wearing a shirt right now that she made from CFB Promotional Products. My guest is Linda Milano. How are you doing, Linda? I'm doing well, Steve. Thank you for the invitation to come on to your show. You're welcome. So we want to start off with if people, there's something, uh, Linda's very involved with uh, the making the over taking the stigma, I guess the word is away from overdoses and with Team Tony. Tell people about Team Tony and how it all got started and your events. You have events coming up, which unfortunately just went virtual, which yes. sucks. But tell everyone about what Team Tony is and why you got involved and just a background of the story. Okay. So I am the oldest of four girls and my youngest sister Tony died from a heroin overdose in May of twenty seventeen. Um Tony had struggled with addiction issues for probably close to a decade, but she always wanted to um, be in recovery. She wanted that healthy life. She wanted to be a productive person. And she, one of the biggest challenges that she always faced was never feeling worthy and the stigma associated with it. She always had labels associated to her no matter what was going on in her life. Um, fortunately, my sisters and I did not think anything less of her she was one of us she was one of the four and when she passed away it really um took a part of our lives away from us like it's still heartbreaking and there's times where I still get choked up talking about it um so immediately after her death um you know, we were trying to make some sense out of what was going on and Tony Luke Jr., a fellow friend, um had lost his son to addiction. And he started the Brown and White campaign, which Brown and White represents the colors of heroin. And to kind of bring a face and a voice to the people that were lost um, and to bring conversations to the forefront to end the stigma, because these are people that are loved. It's someone's sister, someone's brother, someone's mother, child. And the loss is real. Um, so we formed Team Tony, and each year in September, we walk in the ProAct Recovery Walk at Penn's Landing in Philadelphia, and we raise money, and we choose to dedicate the money to the Women's Recovery Community Center in honor of my sister, Tony. Um, this will be the fifth year that we'll participate the sixth walk. The first three were in person at Penn's Landing, and there were 27,000 to 30,000 people in attendance with all types of messages, whether they lost a loved one or in recovery themselves or, you know, striving to, you know, claim their recovery each day. Um, and it was important to my sisters and I to remember my sister based on the 
goodness in her heart and the person she was and not a health issue or a choice that she made. Um, so we've spoken at pep rallies. We've walked in the recovery walk. And the last couple of years have been virtual. But Team Tony has been the top fundraising team for since we started walking. So this will be our sixth year walking. And we've close to, to date, we've raised like $35,000 for the Women's Recovery Community Center. So how do you think you work on getting rid of this stigma? You know, it, it's it's crazy when you sit there and say there is 27,000 people. I mean, it's not like, that's a big crowd. That's like Wells Fargo Center. And that's like a concert. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, AA, alcohol, you know, Alcohol is Anonymous. I know a lot of people who've gone through the program. Very accepted. Okay, very accepted. And and if you see the devastation, I mean, there's a lot more drinking and driving accidents than there are heroin. I mean, it's just, it's you can see the stats. So how do people, how do you work? Like for you, it must be frustrating because you're doing so much, but then still people have that stigma. How do you start breaking down that stigma where it's like it can be getting to the level where it's accepted like AA? Because, I mean, you know, people, if you say you're an AA, people are like, oh, I'm an AA. You know, but if you say, oh, you know, I was at heroin, people, oh, you know, wait a second, you know, heroin. How do you think you get to that level where it gets more accepted? Because you have the numbers. 27,000 people is, is not like a little drop in the bucket. You know, you think after that it would it would you know, pass on. And we're both friends with Tony and Tony's very passionate when he talks about it. And he doesn't give a shit where he is. He'll tell people what he thinks. But how do you think, you, you know, for you personally, you know, how do you think it can change that stigma and what can you do about it? You know, it's interesting because I've experienced it myself firsthand. Um, and I always, I think the key is communication and having conversations and stop being ashamed of, things that you think other people don't understand. And the more you talk about it, the more it's going to bring to light the real issues. So substance abuse is a medical issue. And it's not like the old days where it was a choice in recreational drugs and and you just do it. There are lawyers, doctors, professionals, every walk of life, it doesn't discriminate. And addiction is affecting so many people, young and old. I've heard some horror stories where EMS workers have given Narcan to a nine-year-old all the way up to a 93-year-old. So there, like I said, it doesn't discriminate. And I do believe that communication and talking about it is key. And that we were never ashamed of Tony. I am not ashamed of Tony. I love Tony. And she was a great person and a very loving person. And, you know, it's been five years since Tony's passing, and I've had numerous conversations with people. And I think part of the issue is that if you're not personally involved with addiction or know someone in your close circle, there's a mindset of it's not my problem. It doesn't happen to me. It doesn't matter. My answer to many people is, okay, that may be true and be very thankful that it's not. Um, I don't know if they're totally being truthful because it seems like it's everywhere these days. But in the most remote sense, if you go to the supermarket and you feel the need to lock your cars because you left some change in your car or, or your car is going to be broken into – then it's probably going to be your issue, right? Like in the very remote sense, someone who's so desperate to find their next, you know, hit, they'll break into cars and they'll do things that they're not very proud of, but it becomes your problem. As a community, you're walking in the street and you know not to go into certain neighborhoods and stuff like that. It's your problem. So the only way you're going to change it is by everyone getting behind it. And at the very least, 
being kind and not judgmental. Um, and I think having those conversations and, and making people understand that it is a health issue and not a choice, um, and although there may be a choice involved at some point, it, it's not people shouldn't be labeled based on the mistakes that they make or a health issue. Um, I lost my dad to cancer a couple years prior to losing Tony, and he had stage four lung cancer. That was a choice. He smoked for 40, 50 years. At no point was he turned away by the doctors. After 28 days of treatment, he wasn't told to go figure it out on his own or, or join a support group and, and left on his own devices to, you know, stay healthy. Um, at no point was he looked down on. And when I, when I tell people I lost my dad to cancer or, you know, I immediately get sympathy and understanding and compassion. If I tell people that I lost my sister to addiction or an overdose, you can see the body language change. You might get an I'm sorry, but it very quickly changes the conversation because they don't want to talk about it. And I understand it's not an easy subject to talk about. Even, you know, these days, I too, at times, you know, it's overwhelming because the loss is just pile up. Um, but I do believe that having conversations and sharing from experiences carries more weight than people telling you what you should think, what you should believe. Well, I think also it's about knowledge of the situation because, you know, so many people, because of what you see on TV, so many people think of when they hear heroin, they think of the stereotypical junkie on a TV show mm -hmm. or the crackhead in, a, in um, Boys in the Hood. They think of that when they don't know. And a lot of people don't know is a lot of people who end up ODing, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not a, I don't know the stats, but a lot of them are people who have been clean for a while. And then all of a sudden they sit there and go, something happens and they go, I need that hit. And their body's not used to it because they're weaning out or things change. And I think that's the problem with the uh, education on it. People, because of TV and TV formulates things, people think, oh, you know, everything's, everything's Fishtown or Kensington or whatever. Everyone thinks everything, it's like that. But there are people, I mean, I know, like you said, I know people, and I grew up in Cherry Hill. I know people whose kid who are very successful, whose kids have had problems. And it's not like, and their kids weren't just sitting there like rolling around in the alleys. And that's what I think people need to be more educated on because people have a misconception and, and people are afraid. I think people are afraid to actually think about it. Yeah. You know, I think again, it's more widespread and it doesn't discriminate. And using titles like junkie and loser and addict, they're hurtful because at no point would you walk up to a diabetic and say, hey, diabetic, what are you doing today? Take your medicine? Did you use your insulin? You wouldn't do that. It wouldn't be accepted. So why do we think that it's okay to use those terms for someone that's dealing with a medical issue? Hollywood it, you know, feeds into that, but that also adds to the guilt and the shame that my sister felt and other of people dealing with substance abuse. Because when they come out of recovery, they're like, I'm a junkie, I'm a loser. So you have to change that mentally to believe that you deserve the help, to deserve a healthy life. My sister was six weeks clean when she overdosed. She had been in rehab. She wrote me a letter within those six weeks saying, this time's different. I want to live. I want to help women in recovery, which actually fuels our purpose with Team Tony. But she had started a job with um, a company and 
and she was doing really well and, and going to work every day. Things seemed to be falling into place. And then she got hurt at work. The workplace was not very understanding and she was home and all of those negative thoughts and perceptions started to creep in. And, you know, in a moment of weakness and letting those demons, those self-demons get a hold, she chose to, you know, get high that day, except it was the last time that she would ever be high. Um, And that's a lot of times when when you have an addiction problem or when you, you deal with substance abuse, whether it be alcohol or drugs or or anything, it's a lifelong process. You're never cured. Each day it might get better, but it's always in the background. And you always have to be conscious that one bad day doesn't mean that you can turn to that substance because for for anyone, it could be the last time that they do it, especially when you're talking about drugs these days. It is. I mean, it is a different world, but we're going to switch gears now. We're going to talk about your business because, you know, people also, you know, look up Team Tony. She'll give you the info at the end. Uh, Donate to it. You know, even if it's it's virtual, but you can still donate. They're still going to walk. I mean, I always, I always were talking about that the other day, like a virtual walk. Like when you go out and you walk, you're all excited, like, oh, there's all of us. And it's like virtual. It's like, I mean, do you walk around your neighborhood? Do you sit in your house? Do you go to a treadmill? It's just this, this, the pandemic and all this has really changed things because it's just changed. But, yeah. and it's also changed Linda's business. Now, Linda, as I said, is the owner of CFB Promotional Products. And first of all, tell us where the name came from because Linda's a, a big, Linda's like the biggest dog owner. I was in a networking group and we would vote for her, uh, Pet of the month. And it was so funny because it was like all these dogs and this one cat. And I was so pissed at this cat. And I like cats, but this, this cat <laughs> would show up and it would be in the voting. And, and the dog would always win. Uh, but but tell us about how your the name of your business and how you got how it all started. Okay. So I am an animal lover. I do like cats too, but I do prefer uh, dogs. Um, and when I started CFB promotional products, I had been in the industry for over 20 years at that point. Or And one of the things that I wanted to keep in the forefront was to pour the same. What industry? Promotional products and custom packaging and marketing, helping people with marketing collateral. Um, So I had been in the industry for quite some time. And um, it was important to me to always pour the same heart and passion into each and every project. Because although I may be working on my 100th pen project, it's my clients first, and they deserve the same energy and passion and excitement as everyone else. Um, so I do not have kids. I have dogs. I have Pomeranians. Creamy and Fudgy were my first two Pomeranians that have now crossed over the Rainbow Bridge, but Bonbon and Toffee are my two newest ones. So CFB stands for Creamy, Fudgy, and Bonbon, named after my dogs. And Toffee is often seen on Thursdays on my social media posts for Toffee Pick Thursday. And I use their initials to form the company name to always remind me to pour heart and soul into each and every project that I work on. And anyone that's an animal lover and a dog lover, it doesn't matter if you go out the door 
for five minutes or three weeks or a year, when you come back home, they greet you with that same energy, that same passion, that same excitement that I want to pour into each and all of my projects. Now, you think Toffee gets pissed because the uh, name's not in the title, like it's not CFBT, like is it is ever doing like a hunger strike going, <laughs> you know, this is bullshit. I'm, I'm, I'm in the pictures because Toffee's the star. That's when it was in the, you know, so Toffee's probably like, I mean, does Toffee get an ego? Well, maybe that's why he doesn't eat his food every day. I don't know. He's not a good eater. <laughs> But he, um, you know, I couldn't rebrand CFB when we got Toffee. He's only three years old, and we gave him some spotlight by doing social media posts. So, What made you decide, though, years ago to get into the packaging? Which is something, I mean, it's one of those things, it shows you have to be creative because, you know, I mean, people don't, you're, I mean, you helped when I was with Coit, you know, you came up with the idea for the, the coffee, I mean, the pizza cutters, which people loved. So you had to have a side of creativity. But were you a creative kid? I mean, what, what drove you to this road of packaging and and promotional? So I actually kind of stumbled into the role. I was paying uh, my way through college, and I applied for a job in an administrative role for a company that did custom packaging and binders. Um it was intended to be a temporary job to help me pay for school. And I noticed that each day that I was going to work, I was learning more and more. It was a family business. I was welcomed into you know, their family business. And I would probably still be there if they were still open um, and loved everything about that job. And I learned so much. And it really did bring out the creative side of me. Um, and I've worked on projects for Campbell Soup and Nike and the NFL. Um, and it, it can be very complex. There are so many different materials, so many different products out there that can go into marketing someone's messages, whether it be internal for employees and, and you know, a new hire kid or appreciation, those kind of things. But also, external marketing, reaching your customers and your audience that you're trying to attract. Um, and I love that each day was a different day. There's no two days that are the same because everyone's needs are different. And if you listen and you ask questions, it helps you to fine tune those marketing ideas to be specific to what they need and it'll get better results. Now, when you went out on your own, was it because I guess the company closed? So I was let go from the family business in 2012, quickly went to another company, a much larger company doing pro mostly promotional products. Um, but it was not a great culture fit for me. It was one of the more challenging jobs of my life. And I tried to focus on the positive um, and really understand why I didn't like that particular role and so when they laid me off in six months, I was actually really grateful because at the same time, that's when my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And um, personally and professionally, I needed to kind of take a step back. So I took a couple months off, really spent some time with my dad, but I also reevaluated what I wanted to do in the future. And it was Memorial Day weekend of 2014. Uh, that week, I had interviewed for many different positions. I was offered three different jobs, one in a construction industry, totally different field. Another was for a, a promotional products company, but they were only hiring for administrative work 10 hours a week, and I was well overqualified. And the third job, I don't even remember what it was. So I 
told each of them that I needed the weekend to kind of think about what I was going to do, and I would give them their answer on Tuesday. Over the weekend, I just had this gut feeling that none of the roles were right. So I, the one that I was leaning towards was the 10-hour-a-week job. And I asked the owner to meet with me one more time in Panera in Deptford. And I remember even the seat that I was sitting in. And I asked him, through conversation, why should I work for you when I can do this for myself? And in that moment, it was that light bulb moment where I remembered the life insurance policy that my dad left me and my sister was a few thousand after all said and done. I was going to tear up the check and it forgot about it for months. In that moment, it kind of um, hit me that I should open my own business. Now, it was something my dad had always told me, especially throughout his um, own health issues and, and like his health journey, that he needed to be his own boss. And, you know, I've helped other businesses become successful that I needed to give myself a shot. And so that was that eureka moment where I said, you know what, I need to give this a shot. And um, I called Chris, my husband, and said, hey, we need to talk. I think I need to open my own business. So where do you go when you do that? Because you think, okay, you've never been, it's something, well, luckily, a lot of promotional companies are smaller. I mean, when you deal with people like in South Jersey, they're not like huge because people, smaller businesses like to deal with smaller businesses. So that's one thing. But where, where do you start? I mean, you're sitting there, you have all this knowledge, okay? Mm -hmm. But there's a big difference between so knowledgeable and packaging to all of a sudden saying, holy shit, I have to go out. I have to get, customers aren't just going to come to me. You know, they may know me, but so how do you, where do you start to start building your customer base? Where does, where does that start? I think mindset is a big factor. Um, when you're a business owner, it takes on a different life. There's a lot more responsibilities. It's very rewarding, but it's also a lot of hard work. And if you're in the mindset that you're going to put in the work and the effort and and give it your best shot, then that's when you're going to have the most success. But one of the things that I knew early on, um, you know, I built my business from the ground up, zero. I had zero customers when I made that decision. And it was, my business is primarily built on networking and word of mouth referrals. Um, a lot of my existing clients refer me to other customers or other departments. And I've been a very active networker from the very beginning. Uh, Catholic Business Network that you mentioned in the beginning, but also a few local chambers and you know, the South Jersey Chamber of Commerce of Southern New Jersey. Um, I I've attend a lot of events. I, I ask questions. I attend, you know, client meetings and um, really am active in the community. And I think that when you're active in the community and you build your business on relationships, doors open. Okay, well, I'm going to get to networking because you, know, you network a lot. And it's funny, when you first started going to those networking events, I remember when I first started with Coit and I went to a South Jersey chamber and I think it was Rick Horner was the ambassador who was very nice to me, brought me along. And I was like, this is great. you know. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I don't really know people because I, I I'm not from the area. And I mean, I'm from the area, but I was gone for so long. And a lot of people I knew who I went to high school with were like owners. They're lawyers. They're partners. They're not going to networking events. And I remember it was it was weird because I remember meeting someone and as soon as they found out I was somewhat of their competition, they just stopped talking to me and walked away. And I was like, this is bullshit. 
I'm like, you know, because I don't look at it as competition. And But when you're the new kid in town, like for you, how did you start breaking into the group? Because unfortunately, like the Chamber's great. And, you know, we're both ambassadors. And, you know, we look out for people because we know we've been there. But, you know, you go to some of these events and there's a lot of clicks. I mean, you can't get away from it. It's like, it's. I'm thinking it's not high school. I always say, you know, if you're going to networking to be popular, you screwed up in high school or college because you should have taken care of that. But how did you start branching in to that business because no one knew you, you're, you know, you're new, you're female also, which is something that, you know, sometimes people still in this day and age will sit there and go, oh, oh, well, she's, they don't take you serious because they think, oh, well, well you know, I mean, you, you've been there, you don't yes. talk about it. So how did you start? Because you do, you know, a lot of people, but how, how did you start in the beginning? Was there any frustration? Did you feel shunned ever? Or were you all automatically, you know, brought into it? So funny you should say that. Networking is not my superpower. It's not something that um, comes easily to me. It, it definitely takes work and effort. And I can tell you that there was a lot of mistakes in those early days. Um, you know, in the beginning, I would go into these large gatherings and it, it's uncomfortable trying to break into those groups. And, and again, um, there, there are the clicks and not feeling welcome and, and not knowing to, how to say, hi, I'm Linda, and, and kind of start a conversation. Um, it wasn't really until probably a good year, year and a half after, after making so many mistakes and stressing myself out and making it so uncomfortable that, you know, before events, I would actually have to give myself pep talks or be in tears going into them. Um, I made the decision that I wasn't going to try to get business. I was going to have conversations and learn about people and hear their stories. Because again, when you talk to people and you treat them as a person and not as like a dollar sign or like this person can give me business, it naturally comes to you. And you learn so much and you develop more genuine, authentic relationships. Now, I still go to networking groups that, you know, it, it could be uncomfortable and there's the clicks. I've just decided that they're not the audience that I want to deal with anyway because if they are forming the clicks, then they're not open to having conversations and they're probably not really genuinely wanting to help others, that they're there for probably selfish means. Um, and again, I'm open to talking to anyone and helping anyone. Um, I have a lot of competition in my own field. But we each bring a different skill set and different offering to it. And we have different customers and relationships. Not everyone's going to be a good fit for you. So I've actually had conversations and helped out my competition. And I've asked my competition for help when it was something that I was maybe struggling with. Um, so I just go into networking and with a, you know, a friendly perspective and knowing that I felt alienated at the groups. And I always look for those that might be you know, off to the side in the corner or sitting by themselves or kind of looking like a deer in a headlight, which I've had that look many, many times and introduce myself and just kind of at that point, see who they're looking to meet and look around the room and see who I can introduce them to. I'm the same way, but sometimes, you know, and this happens, you know, it's probably happened to you is, you know, there's, I always try to help other people who are on the side of the room and because you feel bad because we've both been there. But sometimes you go over and you meet that person and then you figure out why they're in the side of the room. Like they're just some <laughs> wing nut and you're like, oh my God. And then you're like, get away from me. And that's happened to me before. And you, and it, but that's the thing, like you're very kind. And I think we both 
are into building relationships. Now, talking about CFB, I have a question for you. And it's funny, on my other podcast, Cooper Talk, I interview a lot of musicians. And I always ask them, you know, do you remember the first time you heard your song on the radio? Do you remember with CFB, your first you start your first deal ever. Do you remember the first deal you inked? Do you remember that or no? Yes, I do. It was a um, local bank that had an ad in the mass bulletin. I had went to church that Sunday, and I read the bulletin. I'm one of those few people that actually reads the bulletin. And I was flipping through, and I saw all the advertisers, and I said, hey, this is probably a good place to start. They're local. Let me make a couple phone calls. And it was a bank local to my area. I went in, introduced myself, brought some imprinted CFB pens to them and said, hey, I'm local. You know, my company is new. However, I am not new to the business. I'd love to, you know, help you out if there's any opportunities. And they said, great timing. You know, we do calendars that we hand out to our customers each year. And we're looking to get some calendars for the 2015 calendar year. Um, Showed them a couple examples got the order, and it's reprinted every year since, and I've actually gotten referrals from them. Now, when it comes to promotional stuff, as I said, when I was with Coit, you, you suggested the pizza cutters, which was great, and then you had the lip gloss, and they were very inventive. But there are some people who are very steadfast, steadfast at pens, okay? And the funny thing is, I have so many pens. I mean, I have them under my desk, and, and I used to leave them over the desk, and Joanne, my wife, would yell at me, be like, what, what is with these pens? She doesn't talk like that, people. That's just my Joanne voice. Um, <laughs> so, but, okay, with pens, though, is it still a valid? I mean, I understand everyone needs a pen. I mean, I have actually, I have Kirsten Toller's pen in my car, and I cross out when I go food shopping and my stuff. But pens, everyone seems so attracted to pens. Is that ever going to disappear? I mean, what's your take on pens? I mean, why are people so fascinated? They're, I mean, people are fascinated. Yeah. By, like, I got a pen. I got a pen. I mean, what? where does that fascination come from? So, Kirsten is actually one of my customers. I provided those pens for her, and she used them in the right way. She's an accountant. People need to sign documents, and a lot of times we don't have a pen with us. So she hands them a pen as a thank you for her business, but they also get to keep it and sign the documents that she needs to mail in for her services. Um, that's the really one of the correct ways to use the pen. I don't think the need for pens is ever going away and people's perception of the need of pens ever going away. A lot of my clients will choose them because they're inexpensive. You can get inexpensive pens for, you know, 20, 30 cents a piece. And then you can always go high end, like a cross pen and spend like 50, upwards of $50 for a pen. And the idea of what you're giving out, and a lot of times they're just ordering, you know, five or 10,000 pens to plaster them at a trade show floor so that they can give out something to everybody. It's not always necessarily the right um, item to give out because I always tell the story how I went to a small business expo first year of me starting the company. There were 120 exhibitors and 67 of them gave out pens. I walked around checking out, seeing what they were giving out, having conversations. And it was every business that you can imagine. It was a small business expo from um, accountants to IT services, every kind of business there. 
and everyone, it seemed like everyone was giving out pens. Not one company gave out any form of paper. That later in that afternoon, I needed to write notes. They were giving some kind of presentation. And I found myself digging through my bag of 67 pens with no paper. I ran and got a napkin to use one of my 67 pens to write the notes that I needed to do. And I thought at any point, if someone would have given out a sticky notepad, which is same price point as an inexpensive pen, it would have solved a need that would have made me catch their attention on their logo. And I would have been grateful for that moment there because I had what I needed instead of writing notes on a napkin. Um, So when people call and ask me, you know, tell me that they want pens, I start asking questions. You know, why are you looking for the pen? Who are you giving it out to? What's the purpose of the pen? And kind of understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish. Because if they just need, you know, a thousand of something, let's have a conversation. Because a lot of times, too, quality over quantity is always the best route to go to. Well, you know, it's funny. I always think now because New Jersey's changed the uh, plastic bag rule, I, I tell, I've talked to people. I said, you know, you, if I was, you know, going to promote like that, I would say I would buy bags and I would pay some kid like 15 bucks an hour to sit in front of the supermarket and just give out that bag mm-hmm. because a lot of people forget their bags. Have, has there been a big upswing in bags since it has changed? Have you noticed that? Early on in, you know, spring of 2022, there was a lot of requests. It's kind of leveled out a lot, um, but that needs not going away. I mean, that plastic bag ban is here to stay in New Jersey, and it is a smart product to use because they are walking billboards. If you have a service or you're promoting a school or, or anything and people are using your bag at the supermarket, others in the community are going to see that logo walking. Um, there are many types of bags out there. There's the basic, you know, grocery tote bag, which um, many have ordered. But you can even upgrade that to be an insulated grocery tote bag, which is actually one of my favorites. And that'll quickly become everyone's favorite. So when they do go to the supermarket or to the store, they're going to gravitate towards that particular bag because it's their favorite. Now, you started your business. You're doing well. You're out networking, you're getting clients, you're building, 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 building. Then the pandemic happens. Okay. Tell me what went through. Once again, I've talked to musicians about this who said, oh, we just thought, you know, we, our tour was going to be canceled for a month, then we'd be back. And then two years later, we're like, holy shit, we can, wait, we still can't get on. And then they book something and then someone gets COVID and the tour gets canceled, blah, blah, blah. For you, what was your pattern when it first happened? You know, and, and people, what you don't understand also is, you know, COVID hit us all with our jobs. But for Linda, it goes a level deeper because it hit her supply chain. And that's what, that's what the thing, but what happened in the beginning? What was your, did you think it was going to just be flashing a pan, everything be fine. And then how did you deal with, as it started going on, going, wait a second, you know, one, I can't get out to talk to people. Two, people aren't giving stuff out because they're not out. And three, how am I going to get the damn stuff? Yeah. So, a majority of the products that we sell in the promotional products industry are manufactured overseas, heavily in China, but it's now shifting a little bit to other locations like Mexico and India and um, some other places, Vietnam. But it's still a heavy concentration in China. So I had a head start on the whole COVID news stuff, and I had been following it in December. And when the calendar year changed and everyone celebrating, you know, 2020, I remember saying, okay, let's proceed with caution because um, this was 
going to be a big deal. And I started to make different decisions for my business personally that were pulling back a little bit. Marketing budgets are the first to go, last to return. And there's a reason for that because, um, you know, if no one's buying your services, there's no money to pay for the marketing, right? But that's also the right time to heavily promote because everyone else is, you know, hot, you know, pulling back. You need to be in the forefront. So, Again, having the experience been in the industry, the last real big hurdle for the industry itself was in 2008. And I knew that this probably was not going to be a couple of weeks. It was more than likely going to be a year at a minimum, but probably more realistic, a couple of years. It became obvious to me in February of 2020 that this was going to have some major impact on the industry as a whole and you know, society as a whole. Um, you started hearing stories of it starting to hit the U.S. And I remember being at a chamber event the Friday before everything shut down or the Thursday before everything shut down. It was at Harvest. I think you were there too, Steve. And the night before, the chamber called me and said, do you have hand sanitizer? If you can't bring us hand sanitizer, we're probably going to have to cancel the event. And I had ordered 500 tubes of hand sanitizer in January, not because of COVID, but because we were entering cold and flu season. And it always was mind-boggling to me that we'd shake a bunch of hands during cold and flu season and not run to the bathroom, wash our hands, or spray it with hand sanitizer. Um, and so I had all the CFB you know, tubes there, and I brought them to the event. And the conversation I had you know, with someone was, do you think we're shutting down? And at that point in time, I knew it was only a matter of days before we were shutting down. What I didn't realize was how long and how big of an impact it was going to have. Um, that following Monday, all offices were closed, right? The immediate days, it was a mad scramble of redirecting projects that were already in the works that now need to, sh you know, ship to a residence, getting in contact with UPS and FedEx and, and those packages that were already en route, trying to figure out who's going to accept them, events that had been canceled, trying to help clients figure out what do I do with this stuff that we now can't give out. Um, I, you know, even before you know, the pandemic, I would instruct customers, unless it's absolutely necessary, rarely put dates on your product, because if something happens, you're not going to be able to use them at another time. Um, some of my clients listened, others did not. So they, you know, ended up using the postal service to ship it to the recipients if they had their address. Um, I also knew that at that point in time, there was going to be a need of, again, Marketing budgets pull back when something happens, economy like with the economy. But th especially for small businesses, that's essential for you to stay top of mind. How do you do that? So I made it a point to concentrate my efforts on Zoom networking and, and virtual networking and reach out to every client I had. Hey, anything going on? What's, you know, what's the biggest challenge right now? Is there something I can help you with? And use my skill set of creativeness to brainstorm for ideas. Not all of them ended up in orders because, again, we weren't shipping anything at that point um, or like the factories were closed down as well. But, you know, come up with creative solutions to help small businesses succeed and keep their doors open because it was pretty desperate. Um, and all, and obviously hand sanitizer was a uh, staple in my industry for 
for as long as I can remember, and help navigate some of those early days of finding the hand sanitizer um, and eventually face mask. And it was probably months, maybe you know, a year, where the only products that was really selling were you know, face masks and hand sanitizer. Now, as a business owner, when this is all going on, how do you deal with prices going up? It happened in restaurants. It happened, you know, your price goes up. And then all of a sudden people go, well, wait a second. I paid this, uh, you know, three years ago I paid this. It's like, yeah, well, the world didn't shut down three years ago. <laughs> How do you deal with that as a business owner? I mean, have you had you had the fact that most people understand it? Like, you know, when I go to a restaurant, the price is higher. Do I like it? No, but I understand it. You know, I have a friend of mine in from... San Diego who runs five restaurants out there called Dirty Birds. It's a wing place. And he said the price of wings just went up. And I think we had talked about this in Coffee with Cooper, how it used to be you could get a dozen wings for like nothing. Now it's like, oh, a dozen wings is like 18 bucks. But how do you do that as a, how do you deal with that as a business owner when you're not trying to, you're not trying to screw your customer over. It's not you saying, oh, screw you. I'm going to take, it's not like you're not the person selling sanitizer for 15 bucks. You're someone who's doing it. How do you deal with a customer when they, they have to be like, oh shit, you know, we're, are, you know, but you have to make your profits. How is that? How have you been able to deal with people about that? So again, the mindset when I started the business, it was not about to make money. Obviously I have to make money to, you know, put food on my table, but it was also helping other small businesses. I'm a small business. I'm a woman owned, family owned business. And that loyalty to the community matters. And I built my business off of relationships. So again, having conversations with my existing client base and having conversations at networking groups and understanding the challenges. There are certain things that people have in their their marketing toolbox that are staples, pens, mugs, t-shirts. So if I saw a price increase in the you know forefront that it was like – pending next month this price is going up, I would pick up the phone or send an email to every customer that I knew ordered that stuff and say, hey, look, there's an increase coming. Are you ready to order? Can I help you? Do you want to look at other products? Tell me, you know, what do you want me to do to help you? And a lot of them do understand. um, But there are some that don't have realistic expectations with pricing. And if they think that they can get it you know, cheaper elsewhere and not have the value that I bring to the table, then maybe an online.com company is the right fit for them. But there, the reality is, you know, the pricing is gone up. Um, each year in December, I, ha- I have catalogs printed for the following calendar year with sale items. Those catalogs for the last two years have been outdated by February of the year. So I've not really mailed out the physical catalog because the pricing that's inside fluctuates so quickly that you can't even print them fast enough. Um, And it's just really, you know, having conversations on the supplier side too and understanding the challenges that the suppliers are facing and where the price increases are coming and what products are going to be heavily affected. And then just communicating that to my customer base, whether it be through social media or, you know, networking and, and conversation. So what's the future for people ordering? I mean, you know, I know you had mentioned one thing about there might be a UPS strike or something like that, or, I mean, you know, what is the future? Like if someone wants to order now, how much should they advance the timeline of they getting the product? Because once again, and that can change again, we don't know all of a sudden, 
you know, we might get, you know, you know, trouble with China and we embargo. We have no bargain. All of that goes. For realistically, let's say someone wanted T-shirts right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. When would they have to order them and when would they get them in, in realistic, like not like, I mean, I see people on uh, on Facebook in the uh, neighborhood groups like, oh, I need, a, you know, 100 T-shirts uh, by Tuesday. And I'm like, it's Saturday. You're not getting 100 T-shirts by Tuesday you know, unless you have some kid, you know, in the garage silk screening them <laughs> with those old machines that my sister used to have. But what's what's the realistic time frame now for people when they order is it is it going to take a while? And what products can't you get? It is going to take a while. Ideally, you're planning three to four months in advance. At best, you need six weeks before, like, go through the proofing process and shipping. And, and again, it's a fluid situation. So that does change from week to week. I now am getting notices from some factories that do a lot of, you know, fall is the busy season. Um, you're you're approaching the end of your holiday season. That is going to impact a many many different factors from factory production to shipping. The volume just increases to crazy numbers. And with that, with the number of you know packages increasing, the problems also increase, right? So you want to give yourself plenty of time to navigate any hiccups that come up throughout the process. And as far as t-shirts go, a lot, it, the answer, most stuff is not made to order in the sense we're not going and knitting and sewing a shirt. It's sitting on a factory floor somewhere. So as long as the inventory exists and we're just decorating the product, we can turn it around in probably four to six weeks. But what I found, and this has been consistent for probably a year now, with wearables, not all sizes are available. So if you're looking for a black T-shirt, you might get a small and a large, but the medium and extra large are out of stock. Well, you can't. it's not easy to just shift to another manufacturer and fill in the gaps because that color black might be different from shirt to shirt, from manufacturer to manufacturer. So again, understanding the client's needs if they're, all the shirts are going to be seen at the same time. Um, but it's definitely, this is now a time where you should be working with someone that's more got a more hands-on approach and can help you navigate some of those hiccups that are, will come up and will help you fa- track down the UPS packages and the FedEx packages that are lost. Um, and not just hit a button and submit your order online because then you really are taking a chance with you may or may not get your delivery. Um, I, I would encourage people to work with you know, smaller businesses that have a vested interest in the success of your project. So we got to go soon. I got a question for you. Uh, give a give a insight about you know, in networking. You know, what what can someone do to network if they have what you had before? Like you were, you know, had to give yourself a pep talk, and, and you were, you know, intimidated somewhat. How did you actually end up overcoming that? And what would your what would your advice be for someone who's like, oh, because I talk to people like, oh. You know, I, I go to this group and, I, and I'm like, well, some groups just suck. I mean, you know, we have we have someone in, in Coffee with Cooper who she makes fudge. And she went to a group and she's like, no one talked to her. I'm like, how can you not talk about fudge? I'm like, that group sucked because, you know, fudge is very, 
It's an amazing story. I mean, it's just everyone loves fudge. If you grew up in New Jersey, it's the thing. But what would what what would be your advice for someone who is new at networking or someone who is not feeling comfortable at networking? Because you're always out there. You're involved in a bunch of groups. What would be your advice for them? Uh, take a deep breath. And when you go into the room, understand that many other people in that room feel the exact same way that you are. Um, there are some that are very comfortable with networking and seem super outgoing and friendly. And they're going to welcome you just because they're a friendly person. But there's also you know, a large percentage of people that are going to have the jitters and, and feel the uncomfortableness. Look for people sitting you know, by themselves or or maybe wandering by the drink station and just go and introduce yourself and say, boy, you know, like, isn't this a large event? And just talk about something, not necessarily what your business is doing, and just generate a conversation that you're then going to become more comfortable with. And you'll you'll start to settle in. And once you have that first conversation, the next one gets easier. And if you can't break into a circle, move on. They're not for you anyway. You want to associate with your pe- with people that are going to be welcoming and friendly and will help one another. And people don't get drunk because a lot of times if you get drunk, you open your mouth and you can, you can kill two years of networking with one stupid comment, and I've seen it happen, so you don't want to do that. So, Linda, uh, tell everyone how they can get in touch with you. One, with Team Tony, and two, with CF- CFB. Okay, so Team Tony has a Facebook page. It's uh, Team Tony, and I, I don't remember the uh, underscore for Team Tony, but it's Team Tony Canale. And for my company, it's CFB Promotional Products. My website is cfbpromotionalproducts.com. I'm active on LinkedIn and Facebook, so you can reach out to me on any of those platforms. And if you know you want to ask me something for Team Tony, reach out to me at CFB. It's my company. I'm happy to ha- answer any questions I can. And now, when does uh, Toffee's next uh, competition come up? The c- company that did the uh, pet of the month and the pet of the year is no longer doing the contest, but I'm actively seeking a contest for them because they're, they're definitely cute and we love to make them win. Okay, so people definitely go check out uh, Linda on LinkedIn and CFP promotions. There, there's great pictures. That dog had a dress. I, I don't know. I mean, I, they're, I was like, oh my God, I think my wife is jealous. It's a nicer dress than I ever got her. She's like, you don't get me. I said, you had a wedding gown, whatever. But people still go look up Linda Milano, uh, add her on LinkedIn, check out her post, follow her. If you need promotional stuff, go check her out. Uh, you can email me at thecooptank at yahoo.com. Don't forget, I'm sitting here with, uh, I'm starting a new paid networking group, so get more information. That will start in October. Also, I'm available for speaking events. I uh, have a very different networking background. You know, I was Taylor Hawkins 30th birthday party from networking. You're not going to hear that from other speakers. So check me out. And I want to thank Towncast Studios. I hit them up. They're great. Towncaststudios.com. Info at Towncast Studios. Also check my other podcast out, coopertalk.net, over 925 episodes. And my latest guest was my buddy, Patrick Fabian from Better Call Saul. So thank you. And I will talk to you guys next time.